and you can press play. Work it, make it, do it, makes us harder, better, faster, stronger. Work it, harder, make it, better, do it, faster, makes us stronger, more than ever. Congrats on the 20,000, you guys, really. Congratulations. Welcome to That That Don't Kill Me, a podcast about illness, health, and disability by the people who live it every day. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. And I'm Jamie Rich. And this week, we're really excited because we have a guest. Woo. Yay. Um, we have <laughs> we have Brittany Packnett. And for those of you who aren't familiar, um, Brittany is an activist, an educator, and a writer. And she is a sought-out sought out voice in the work of social change and empowerment. She's a former fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics, a co-founder of Campaign Zero, uh, a co-host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, and her recent TED Talk on confidence, you guys should all watch it, recently garnered nearly 3 million views. So the better question is, what does Brittany not do? <laughs> <laughs> we're really excited to have her on this week, and we're going to be talking about mental health. So thanks, Brittany, for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm super excited not just to be a guest, but about the platform that you all have been building. So I'm excited to be a part of it. Oh, thank you. Great. Thank you so much. So every week we start our episodes off with a review of our past week or kind of like our present moment. Um, and we rate our pain, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. This comes from the pain scale that doctors use. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a yeah. pretty stupid scale. Uh <laughs> One is the best. Is best. I always get confused. So yeah, it's, the, op- it's, it's the opposite of most uh, how people rate most things. But yeah, one is you're feeling good, and ten, 10 is, is the worst horrible. pain in your life. And mm-hmm. pain can be, you know, Perceived pain's relative. In- it can be physical pain. It can be mental pain. It can be stress. Whatever. Um, but yeah, so we just usually start off with that as a way to say, like, give us a number of how your week's going. I say my number is maybe a five. Um, I and I'm putting it squarely in the middle because I've I think if that's an average of the week, I've had moments that are a higher number, moments that are a lower number. Mm-hmm. Um, I got married about two months ago. We moved. I took on a bunch of projects in between then, as has he. Um, and so. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of pressure. I won't say stress, but pressure and just activity mm-hmm. um, that have been that have come from real blessings. And so I don't want to complain about them, but that doesn't mean that they don't come with a, a need for a lot of energy to be expended. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other day, I was just like trying to get a lot done in a little bit of time because I had to travel this week, which I do very often. Um, I'm talking to you from several hundreds of miles away from my actual home. <laughs> right. Um, and I, um, it was just this one day where I just, y'all know those days where you literally just 
feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're doing one thing after the other. And I felt so good because I was getting everything checked off the list. Mm -hmm. But there was just this one persistent thing that I could not figure out. And everyone I called could not help me figure it out. And I was on the phone for hours trying to figure it out and had to conference in multiple people and couldn't figure it out. And I just, I had to like, I gave myself two minutes to cry. And then I was like, all right, back on the Mm -hmm. horse. Cause I just was overwhelmed by, um, by all that was going on. And I knew I could handle it, but I just, my body needed a release and that's how it released in that moment. So I'd say a five, we've had some up moments and down moments, um, but counting it all joy. Yeah. All right. We'll take a five. We'll take a five. Um, hey, are you? I'm, I'm going to ask Jamie, how, what's your number this week? Oh, I don't know. That's tricky. I'm, I'll probably say, uh, I might be a six or a seven this week. Um, just cause, uh, a slight, a slight follow up the last couple of weeks I've, I've talked about like, um, like, uh, health management and potassium and like the fallout of that. Uh, here's like a peek behind the curtain on, um, managing meds as I recently switched, um, formulations of one type of a pill that I take to another, um, because my doctors determined that it worked better for me. Um, but I hit a wall with getting that drug refilled the past week or two. So I had to switch back to the old formulation for a time. And so I'm not feeling as good uh, because of that. But I, before I came over here today, I just picked up a fill of the actual right uh, drug. So that's good. Back back on the right track. Yeah. What about, what about you this week, Kendall? Oh man. Um, Okay. So 10 is bad. One is good. Um, I'm going to say, a nice like two or three. Ooh. Nice. Good week. A good week. That's a good week. Um, yesterday was my birthday. Happy birthday, Happy Jamie. birthday. Um, and uh I'm starting a new job this week. So I'm just all around It's good things like, going on. Yeah, just like good momentum. Excitement. Um, which if you've been following the podcast, I've been mostly quiet and mostly given like sevens or eights. <laughs> so this is a good coming out of that tunnel direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Feeling, Indeed. feeling good. Ending the year strong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but this week we want to focus pat- particularly on mental health and, um, you know, I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about physical health and, um, I think that the two are really related, mm-hmm. um, but also we wanted to primarily have an episode where we were focusing on like mental health first rather than the impacts of men- mental or the impacts, impacts of, of physical, physical health, health on mental. being mental health as its kind health. of own um, yeah, situation to own deal with thing. And so that's really where Brittany comes in. And, um, you know, Brittany, uh, just for our listeners, like the context of how we know each other is through our relationship when you were a video columnist at Mike and um, I hadn't necessarily, I don't even know what, whose idea it was um, for you to talk about mental health in one of your videos. But I remember you um, bringing it up and it was not something that I had ever heard you speak about. Um, So I think first off, it would probably just be awesome to kind of understand a little bit more about like your relationship with mental health where did it start like um when did you kind of first realize that mental health was something that you needed to care about and 
Like, what has your relationship been like from the beginning? Um, I'd say the the time that I most acutely realized it was going to be a challenge for me was in college. I um, was in the middle of a really complex romantic relationship, one that was by no means healthy, um, but was also um, to a point that you all have been making dealing with some severe physical illness as well. Um, And the combination of feeling uh, lonely and unsupported in both the relationship and in dealing with my, my physical ailments um, uh, started to lead me down a really dark place. And I found myself really going down the spiral that anxiety and depression often lead us down where we feel lonely because of the disease. And then we isolate ourselves because we feel like nobody's going to understand. I don't want to burden anybody with how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's going to care. Why would I tell anybody anyway? Um, And so then I further isolated myself. So the loneliness compounded. Um, And I'm really grateful that my college, Washington University in St. Louis, had really quality um, student health support services. And I'm also really grateful that I was raised by people who are not afraid of therapy. So my mom's a social worker oh, wow. by trade. That's wonderful. When my dad died when I was 12 years old. Like our first stop was a family therapist office. Wow. Um, and I say that coming from like a, a Christian household, right? So mm-hmm. there are, unfortunately, I think a lot of households of faith where people are just like, pray the pain away. Right. And my mom's mm-hmm. like, no, like God made doctors for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really grateful that I wasn't, foreign to the idea. And it took me a second, admittedly, to kind of get on the horse and decide to seek help. But I'm really glad that I did. Um, And a lot of people don't know that. I, I So I received a full diagnosis of depression and anxiety at that time, started taking um, clonazepam and I think one other medication, um, had suicide ideation during that time, um, ended up taking a semester off of school, both because of my mental health challenges and my physical health challenges, like lost a lot of weight. My hair thinned out. Um, my, my mom in particular was just really worried about me and it was actually stepping kind of outside of my current environment, my senior year, uh, my, the first semester of my senior year and interning in DC, that kind of helped re resettle me, right. And reorient Mm. me toward myself. Um, It just gave me the space to be free. I continued to see a therapist in DC, um, that, that my college therapist recommended me for, Mm -hmm. uh, recommended to me rather. And, um, that process of rediscovering myself, healing myself, um, and, and building the kind of healthy habits that I needed, um, to deal with a disease, two diseases, frankly, that I will have been dealing with for my entire life mm. um, was a really, really important step. And so um, that was kind of my first real discovery of, of my challenges. Um, and it was, it was very acute at that point. I've had other acute moments, but that was definitely the first. And when you were in that, I guess, time, did you, I don't know. Cause I think in just looking at my own personal relationship with this topic, I think I didn't necessarily know that me feeling bad was, not normal or that I shouldn't Mm -hmm. that like that I could feel better or that that I just kind of like thought that maybe that's just how everyone felt you know at what point were you like oh this is actually this is more than I shouldn't be feeling this way there's there's yeah yeah. it's possible or might be possible for me to not feel this way if I 
you know, if I do something yeah. about it. I think it was, I think it was when I got to the point where I realized I didn't want to do anything for mm. days on end, mm. like days on end, right? Like I didn't want to go to class. I didn't, I didn't want to do things that are difficult and I didn't want to do things that are easy. I didn't want to go to class. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to, like my mom would be like, well, let's go shop. Like she was just like grasping at straws, trying to find anything that could kind of breathe some life back into me. I didn't want to go shopping. I didn't want to go to a fancy meal. I didn't really want to eat, period. I didn't want to leave my room. Um, I spent a lot of time just in bed and making up excuses for why I couldn't be anywhere, why I didn't want to be anywhere, um, and um, not really feeling like I had the language to articulate to people how I was feeling mm -hmm. and why I didn't feel like I could operate. Mm -hmm. Like my executive functions were just completely undone. Um, was that and so? All I really wanted to do is sleep and maybe watch TV. Right. Was yeah. that was that scary to kind of feel stuck in a place like that and and not even have sort of the words to articulate it? Oh, it completely is. It feels like you're screaming inside your body and nobody can hear you. Mm. Um, and it, it is. Um, it's scary um, because you especially if you lack the skill or the knowledge or the resources or the access to get pulled out of it. Right. So mm -hmm. it, it not only feels scary because you can't articulate it to anyone, but it also is incredibly scary because you don't know when it's going to end. Right, You're like, am right. I ever going to not feel this way? Right. Or is this a permanent right. state of being? Right. Um, and I, I don't know. And because I didn't know what triggered it, I didn't know how to go turn it around. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, those movies that we would watch as kids that kind of, magical movies, right? Where, um, some, something would trigger, you know, a, a kid, you know, hearing other people's thoughts or whatever the, the thing was. Right. And then at the end of the movie, they have to go back to whatever triggered the special ability to right. go and go back to their normal life. Mm. I could never figure out what the trigger was. Mm. So I didn't know what to return to, to get back to a space of normalcy. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and that is, that is one of the, the, the realities of, of the multiple ways in which um, mental health issues show up in our lives, that there's not always a direct trigger, that it's not necessarily a noise or a sound or seeing a person or being in a certain place. Sometimes it is those. And sometimes it is the season. Sometimes it is the time of day. Sometimes it is your hormones. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is just stuff I still can't explain, mm -hmm. right. um, but it will just, sometimes it feels like depression will still just creep up and tap me on the shoulder. And I was not expecting it. Um, and I'm much better now at knowing how to recognize the symptoms of it. So mm. I know I can name what I'm going through for the people that care about me mm. um, and for myself. But especially in those early days, it was scary because I couldn't articulate it and I didn't know how to stop it or when it would stop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in my own personal kind of journey, it's it's been actually really surprising to me that I am unable to articulate my emotions. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I don't even have the language to describe how I'm feeling, which to yeah. me, I think as someone who's incredibly verbal <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, talks and writes and does all that for my job right. um, to, yeah. to feel like, oh, something that's incredibly personal and should be within me is right. out of reach right. is a very unnerving thing. Well, I, 
I think that also goes to, I think that's a common experience with people, specifically with depression and anxiety as well. But I think that speaks to the fact of what depression actually is. Like a lot of people who don't experience it or maybe have experienced it situationally think mm-hmm. depression is like a sadness or a sorrow, but it's it's uh, a lot of times people describe it more as as an emptiness. Like like Brittany, you described yeah. of, of not having the energy or the willingness to do anything. It's it's really, it's like an absence. It's like an absence of yourself. And like Truly. communicating that that isn't there is really hard it's it's impossible it's an impossible task um so i think that that makes a lot of a lot of sense so when you were navigating this in college um this was probably a little bit before i think the world of mental health and the conversation around mental health opened up Mm. was was that really difficult for you to navigate as far as you know potential stigma or what you're worried about what your friends might have thought about oh, you at the time? Well, I remember, um, I remember that the, the breakup of that terribly toxic relationship that I'm very glad I'm not in anymore with a very decent person, but our, our issues just kind of butted heads in a really toxic way. Right. Um, the, the breakup of that relationship coincided with this diagnosis, like within a couple mm-hmm. of days. And I'll never forget sitting at the doctor's office uh, at at school, out in the waiting area, waiting for the script to my prescription. And my mom was with me um, because she had come to she had come to school. It was toward the end of semester, the, the semester she had come to school to pick me up and came to the doctor's office with me. And I remember laying my head in her lap and just crying buckets of tears. Like when she stood up, her whole dress was wet. And I kept saying, well, no wonder he doesn't want me because I'm crazy, right? So I had internalized the stigma, right? That the idea that I got this diagnosis, that I needed medication for this diagnosis. Well, of course, I'm undesirable. I'm, you know, not a good person to be with, et cetera. There's something wrong with me. So who would want to be with me? Mm. Um, So I, I, you know, I didn't even have to necessarily hear the stigma from other people actively because I had already internalized this idea of craziness. Um, And and I work really hard. I've worked really hard to take crazy out of my vocabulary. And there are still some days when I slip up. But the fact of the matter is that ableist language opens the door to these kinds of stigmas in small ways that we don't think about all the time. So when we call something insane or crazy or mental, we are uh, unknowingly sometimes saying to people who really do suffer from and deal with and manage every single day, mental health issues, mental health disability, um, that there is something wrong with you and the way that you are wired. Um, when actually like in, in my book, I think that everybody, because of the traumas we endure, because of the genetics we may have, because of the things that we've gone through, because of the trials in our life, that actually mental health support is good for everybody. And I would love to live it to a a day when, yeah, I would love to live in a world and live to the era when everyone has access to free, high quality, culturally responsive mental health support consistently throughout their lives. That's right. Um, And, 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 
but but moving to a space where as a society we think of it like putting gas in your car or taking right. your car to get checked out you know every 3000 miles right or going to the doctor the 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 you know your primary care physician for a mm-hmm. wellness that this is just a part of living a healthy life, of living a thriving life. Um, what, it, you know, when we finally get to that point, I think we will have done away with the stigma, but most certainly um, have dealt with the stigma. And part of the reason why I feel so willing to talk about it now mm-hmm. is not because I've, I'm somehow cured. I'm not. I do with it all the time. I think I texted my husband a week or two ago, like, I'm, having, I'm not having a great day today. And fi- thankfully, because I have resources and access. I could articulate that to him. He knew what to do about it. I knew what to do about it, et cetera. But like, I talk about it not because I'm cured, but I talk about it because I want to be a part of the work that you all are doing to remove the stigma and let people Mm -hmm. know that not only is it okay to be who you are, um, that, that you deserve, um, that everyone deserves, um, support and support doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Um, support is just about making sure that you can be your best self um, and that you can deal with the things that come your way. I think in a lot of ways we are starting to break down stigma or maybe we are in um, the circles of people who talk about things like this online, but it still seems that there are actual um, real world physical barriers, logistical barriers, people getting help. Um, And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, about um, like what act, what actually accessing mental health care has been like for you? Yeah. I mean, I have um, always had good insurance, right. Which was the, which is the first yeah. rule um, yeah. in my, either through my parents um, and, and I am old enough to have predated an Obamacare that would have allowed me to stay on my parents' health care yeah. in my twenties. But after I I'm graduated, I'm so sorry school, about that because bless up, <laughs> I mean, Obama like, like saved our lives. <laughs> bless up to Obamacare, right? Um, yeah, I that, but I still had access, right? So um, when I graduated from college, um, I moved off of my mother's insurance onto my my work insurance uh, as a teacher, um, and then every job I've had thereafter, we've we've had good insurance. I worked on Capitol Hill. I had good insurance for public employees there. I, I um, went back to Teach for America's administrative side and um, have had good insurance there. Um, and uh, my husband has good insurance. So I have always been insured and insured well, right? Because we know mm-hmm. that there are folks who are yes. insured, but they are underinsured. So I've never had more of a, a I've never had a copay um, with a therapist that cost me more than $20. Um, what? And I know it's, it's really a miracle. And I've never had to, I've never even going to therapy during certain times every single week, I've never run out of, um, access, mm. right? So I've never run out of the number of visits that my insurance will cover. And suddenly my pay goes from $20 to a hundred dollars a session, right? Like, um, I I've also never experienced that. And I know so many people who have, so, um, access for me has, has most certainly been about my insurance has been about my insurance and the additional uh, perks that I've had uh, throughout my career, being able to keep those costs down, um, me having the $20, right. And steady employment to right. be able to get that copay. For but sure. it's also been about the fact that because I know folks who work in, um, the industry of medicine, mental health care, et cetera, that I could find quality, um, therapists who had a level of cultural responsiveness. Yes. So I've, I've talked frequently about the fact that during the Ferguson uprising, I was in therapy every single week. 
then I entered therapy because of some triggers that I had from the relationship I was in at that time. Mm. But um, what ended up coming forth were a lot of different things, including surviving sexual assault and most certainly the racial trauma that I was dealing with every single day in the midst of this movement. Um, and being able to have a therapist who didn't diminish that racialized trauma, who understood it, who had the language to speak about it in a way that was deeply respectful of me and who I am, um, is something that a lot of people don't have access to. And I have so many people in my life that I have recommended therapy to, and they've gone and tried it and they've come back and they said, you know, I really want to believe in this thing. But when I started talking about racialized trauma or gendered trauma or trauma from being an LGBTQ person, trauma from being having a marginalized identity in society, they didn't understand it. Right? They couldn't speak to it. They couldn't. Right. They 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 did, didn't think that it was real even. Right. And yes. um, it is it, it is a really, really harmful thing to work yourself up to the place where you actually go and seek the support that you deserve just to be rejected in a different way, right? That just right. back so much. Um, and so I'm really fortunate to have had not only access to, uh, to um, therapists and um, support structures, but I- I'm very, very fortunate and blessed that those folks were of high quality and, and had no cultural responsiveness. Yeah. I mean, you brought up so many things that I- I've, I personally relate to. I feel like and also that I wanted to talk about. I mean, so I when I first the first therapist I ever went to um, was uh, she was fine. I saw for her for like two months. I brought up some very personal kind of feelings around my my past. And she very much diminished them and said that it was all normal and that I sounded completely fine, um, mm. which I think you know, to your point about people not hearing or believing your your trauma or your past, I think um, it's so harmful. And then, you know, I really thought, okay, therapy is not for me. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think is really damaging because it then really people don't ever, you know, and they don't, they don't they ever don't think get- to go again or try again or um, they don't think that they're going to be heard. I mean, I, for a number of years, recently went to a therapist who specifically dealt with um, young adult chronic illness patients. Mm. And that was a great thing to have, but also a rare thing to have. Yeah. And that therapist was able to talk to me about things that other therapists have not been able to. Um, so it's it's super difficult. And I I just wish that um, we could expand the conversation a little bit in that way to say that, uh, you know, therapy works, but it works when you're seeing someone who's right for you. I do want to get back to um, your personal story, Brittany, because I think it's really important. And one of the specific stories that you told in the mic video, um, and that was you calling this the suicide hotline number. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share that story today. I would. Um, I, um, I was significantly older than the first time um, I, I started to realize I dealt with anxiety and depression. Um, I was in my late 20s, um, living back in St. Louis, um, and I was in a different an equally toxic relationship. There's a theme here <laughs> uh, about, about making some rough choices in love that have everything to do with my traumas, right? And like right. 
looks looking and seeking the wrong things um and and being with another person who is a good person at heart but had their own traumas and our traumas met one another and led to really frustrating situations um but a lot of my um traumas have resulted in deep feelings of uh, inadequacy and low self-esteem um throughout my life and um you know, being able to deliver that TED talk on confidence this year—I was going to say—triumph <laughs> for me, not just because it was a TED talk, not just because it got a lot of views, but because literally, I would not have been a person who could have told that story even a year before that. I would not have been a person who could have gotten up on stage to discuss confidence with any amount of confidence um, for most of my life, and that is a journey I'm still on. Um, but but I know that that was a triumph for me because I was dealing with some of the deepest depths of, of uh, low self-esteem um, and lack of confidence, um, you know, in my late twenties and early thirties. Um, but I was laying in bed one night and I just could not stop crying. Right. Again, that feeling of like not knowing when it, when the feeling is going to end. I mean, I just, all I, I just needed the sun to come up, but it was, you know, midnight, 1am, right. We were hours away from sunrise and I couldn't get any physical light um, and I couldn't get any mental or spiritual light. And I just kept thinking I wouldn't have to deal with any of this if I weren't here, right? And no one would have to deal with this for me if I weren't here. Because I kept feeling like my um I kept feeling like my depression and anxiety were uh, I was making them other people's burdens. Um and again, that plays into this idea of having low self-esteem, this idea that I'm not worth being cared for because there's something wrong with me, this idea that I'm not worth caring for myself because there's something quote unquote wrong with me, right? These two two ideas played off of one another and left me feeling like I had no of like actually not even like feeling like I didn't have any other option, but feeling like the best option was just to not be here anymore. And then I wouldn't have to deal with it and nobody else would have to deal with it. And we could just be done with it. Um, and I knew well enough logically to know that that didn't make sense. You know, like I said, logically, um, but emotionally I couldn't get past that idea. And my brain spoke to my heart enough to say, talk to somebody who can get you through this moment. Um, and I, because I was feeling like a burden, that meant I wasn't going to go call my mom. I wasn't going to go call my boyfriend at the time. I wasn't going to call my brother. I wasn't going to call my friends. I wasn't going to call my pastor um, because I felt like a burden. So the only people that I felt like I could reach out to were people whose literal job it is was to talk people through that moment. Um, and I called and a woman answered the phone and the first thing she heard me doing honestly was crying because I couldn't, I couldn't get the words out. Um, and she told me that I made a good decision to call and that she, she said that um, she was glad that I called because I'm worth it. And she had no, I don't know if she was reading from a script or if this was from training that she mm. had had, but it was, the exact thing I needed to hear at that moment, because what she was helping me recognize is that I was making a decision for myself. I was making a decision for my health, for my well-being, for my life. And through the course of conversation, she helped remind me that I don't have to have everything figured out in that precise moment. All I have to do is keep taking steps and making one choice at a time for myself. 
Um, and when I allowed myself to let go of the weight of feeling completely overwhelmed by my problems, completely overwhelmed by this feeling of inadequacy, I just let myself take it not even one day at a time, not even one step at a time, but like one moment at a time. Mm -hmm. That's when I was able to start getting through it. Um, and so that night was incredibly dark, but the sun did eventually come up. Um, and the woman on the other end of that line helped me find my light. Um, it helped me find just enough light to move on into the next day, call my therapist, get a, an appointment on the calendar um, um, for that same week um, and just take it literally one step at a time. Wow. Well, thank you first off for sharing that because yeah. I think it's really important that people know that people have been through that right? That other yep. people are like them. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do with all of that. We're all that we're doing on this podcast. But I think, you know, looking at you on the outside, right? Um, as someone who's just really been doing all of the things like, you know, we listed in your bio, some pretty impressive stuff. And, I think it's so easy to think to sit there and look at someone's Instagram feed or look at someone's life from the outside and say, wow, Brittany, like she must have the perfect life. She must not deal with anything, you know, but but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's true. You know, like there's probably a lot of people who who think like that that is so not your part of your life. And yeah. to to I think that it's so important that we talk about mental health in this way because we need to shed this um, this impression that that just because people are out out in the world living you know full lives doesn't mean that they don't struggle with something like this. Absolutely. Um, and I think that there's like such a there's such a connection in people's brains that if people are sick in whatever way that may be, physically mm -hmm. or mentally sick like that they're not living big full lives that are or that productive. they or that they don't have the capacity or the energy exactly. to keep up the schedule or do all the things right. or have the brain space yeah. to like have the kind of uh life that yeah. that yeah that people and, look up to and i think that i think that one of the things i'm really learning i turned 35 this year and one of the things i'm really realizing is I don't always have the energy, right? But what I do know is that I deserve to live a full and big and joyful life. Life mm -hmm. will never always be perfect, but what I deserve is a life that is um, better more often than it is not. And I believe everybody deserves that. And I saw someone say that true self-care is curating a life that you don't have to constantly escape from. And if there is one thing that I am determined to do in the year ahead of me is to build the habit and the fortitude to do that. And I say fortitude because it really does take a level of bravery to say yes. no to people, not because you've got an excuse that they will, that, that they deem is acceptable, but because it is simply what you need to do to curate your life at that moment. So I, I do, I've done a lot of stuff in the last couple of years, the last five years in particular, I need to move to a place where I'm focusing on like quality over quantity, right? I need to move to a place where I am focusing on 
doing what brings me joy so that it fills me up enough so that when I'm doing more difficult things, I've still got plenty of joy in the tank to get me through that, right? Um, I need to build a life where I am investing in relationships that make me feel good, that challenge me to be, uh, that, that like grow me in the good ways. I was, um, I was telling my husband the other day, I'm just really thankful for the fact that he's such sunlight in my life. Because Aww. the thing about sunlight is it keeps you warm while it grows you, right? So if you think about yeah. plants, plants need sunlight. Oh, Brittany, and you're going to make me cry. <laughs> plants need sunlight. And, but, there's, yeah. but, but I think we think of light as just beauty and warmth and energy all the time, but it is also growing you, right? It is also making mm. you better. And those are the kinds of relationships that everyone deserves. And so mm. like, I'm trying to curate a life where I'm chasing sunlight, not because mm. things are always going to be perfect, but because I deserve to be warm while I grow. Um, and so I'm just, I, I want to be able to live a full life, not because I've done everything and gone everywhere and said yes to everything, but because I've been smart enough to curate a life that actually works for me and not apologize to other people for it. Uh, well, you just melted my whole heart yeah, into a little puddle. Holy cow. That is, I'm, that is, I think, you know, like those sayings that stick with you, yeah. that is going to be a saying that, that <laughs> sticks with me this, about sunlight, warm you on, while you grow. That is just so beautiful. beautiful. I don't yeah, know where beautiful. you got that, but that's beautiful. It just came, um, it's just, it was true to how I feel. So it just, yeah. I guess it just came to me. It's wow. Wonderful. So to the point of curating your life in this way, I guess that's one question I, I do have. And you, you say you're sort of setting it as a goal for the next year, but I'm curious, you know, this year now or in the past, being a person that is so busy and given that mental health care often or, or sometimes can take really active, regular work mm-hmm. that takes actual time out of someone's schedule like how do you manage that even if it's you know even if you're on in the on the road going somewhere if you're working a bunch like how do you work all that stuff into your schedule and make sure that you're still prioritizing yourself yeah I used Talkspace most most of last year because I've been on the road so much and I found it helpful it is expensive though Um, and so I, um, but, but I did find it helpful to be able to talk with somebody. So I would text my therapist sometimes, um, and we would have standing video chats. Um, Mm. I'm, I'm actively looking for like a a face-to-face therapist in DC now. So I am, um, uh, trying to nail that down. It's, it's actually been pretty difficult. People are, there are a lot of folks that are not taking new patients and there are a lot of folks who are, um, just don't have availability when I need it. Um, I would say, so, so I'm like not actively seeing a therapist right now, but I am seeking to resume those services. Cause I know, like I said, that I need them. Um, I also, um, I, I really spent time thinking through like what brings me joy. And so, um, listening to, uh, uh, <laughs> Listening to and singing along to a lot of music helps a lot because it just R and B Sundays. Yes, R and B Sundays. There's just a reckless abandon that you have when that happens. Um, we just moved into a new place and it's got a lot more space, so I'm spending a lot of time 
nesting, as it were, um, mm-hmm. really trying to like build a comfortable environment knowing what I need. And so um, that means that, like my office is separate from the other rooms in the house because I know that I'm not going to be effective with a lot of distractions and I need to feel like my work is separate from my relaxation. Um, mm-hmm. I We don't have cable in the bedroom. We've got an Apple TV. So it's basically like, you know, movies and music in the bedroom versus like network news and kind of all of the things mm-hmm. that, they need right. that can stress you out. Yeah. Um, I am, I just ordered um, a new alarm clock, which is supposed to, I'll let you know how it works, but it is, it helps. <laughs> It's supposed to wake you up essentially by mimicking like sunrise um, and then like setting the sun when it's time to go to bed. So it's light therapy. But I really did it because using my phone as an alarm clock has not been working well for me. Because what happens is I wake up in the morning and I immediately get on my phone, which means I'm immediately thinking about what other people need from me instead of sitting with my own thoughts, you know, gently waking myself up meditating and reading my devotional, like all of those things get pushed to the back burner that I know start me off well in during a day because I immediately check my text, check my email, check Twitter. And then suddenly I'm wrapped up in what other people need from me or whatever, you know, wildness is happening throughout the world as it were, because there's lots of that right now. Um, instead of actually centering on the things that I know I need to have a good and productive and whole day. Um, so, so I will let you know how the light therapy works out, but okay. not having my a phone be my alarm clock anymore is going to be a huge help to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that all sounds very interesting. I'm, I'm definitely interested in the light thing because I currently wake up to a very annoying, like <laughs> sound and I don't think you can start a good day like that. Oh. Um, but I, th- th- looking into your kind of own personal mental health experiences and dealing with this kind of throughout your life, um, do you feel like, I guess, you know, looking on it from the perspective of where you're at now, um, what do you think that you've a learned from from it? And do you think it's helped you in your having those personal experiences? Do you think that it's in any way helped you in the work that you do fighting for other people? Oh, absolutely. I think that one of the things that going consistently to therapy and really protecting that time during the Ferguson uprising taught me is that I deserve just as much freedom as the freedom I'm fighting for for other people. Um, Mm. And I think that my own issues with self-esteem had me walking around fighting and shouting and screaming and sucking down tear gas and taking pepper spray and, you know, running up against injustice every single day because I just believed everybody deserved to be free but me. Um, and mm. being willing to protect the space of my own healing helped me develop a belief in my own uh, freedom and the worthiness of it. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, it has also, I think, expanded my idea of what freedom looks like. Um, that freedom is not just how we change policies to ensure that people have a living wage, that can they can live in um, quality and accessible housing, that their children can go to high quality and affirming schools. Um, but it is also about making sure that people can do more than just survive, that they can really thrive mm. uh, and recognizing all that that means. 
Um, and it is yeah. expanding my understanding of freedom means that um, I have had to develop uh, new levels of understanding and I'm still in the process of developing new levels of understanding and knowledge about all of the ways in which injustice shows up. So it's not just enough to me to be a racial justice activist. A lot of people like to call me that. I consider myself a, a, a freedom fighter, right? Alongside thousands of others, because I know that race is not the only thing that's holding people back in this world. And so I've mm. had to go and become much more familiar with how ableism functions in this world and how transphobia functions yeah. in this world and how Islamophobia functions in this world, how poverty functions uh, in relationship to all of those things and race and then some, right? Like it is... It is if if I have expanded my idea of freedom to be truly about everyone having the ability to lead a thriving life, then what that means is I have to be educated enough. I have to be a good enough listener. I have to be humble enough to learn how to make sure that I'm standing in solidarity with all people who are not currently experiencing that thriving. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think alt I really think of it in the ways of there are mac there's like the macro of the policy and the systems that we need to change and then there's the micro of how in each individual person is experiencing yeah, their life precisely um what would advice would you give to people who are on the front lines fighting in all of the different fights that 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 are currently taking place in our world um the biggest piece of advice i can give to folks is to know that the work will get done even if you're not always the one doing it. Mm. Um, we, and, and truly, this is not just about self-care. This is actually about humility. It is our ego that tells us um, that we have to be the one organizing yep. the rally, writing the op-ed, making the calls, raising the funds, having the meeting, being on the news, talking the talk, walking the walk, making the speech. It is our ego that tells us we always have to be the ones on the, the one on the front line. The truth of the matter is that real freedom fight, fighting, organizing, and activism is about community. True leaders go and develop other leaders. I know, I know I have been a successful leader when I have done that, right? I know that I have something still to learn when I haven't done that well. And so there's, um, uh, there's, a uh, a dismissal of our ego that we have to do to free us up to even be able to give ourselves the room to care for ourselves, to know that we don't have to be at everything. Or if we are at everything, we don't have to be upfront at everything. We don't have to be responsible for everything. And that in fact, the work can't get done the best it is meant to get done if we center ourselves, right? It is about mm, right. building community. It is about ensuring that lots of people are able to show up as themselves with their talents, with their gifts, with their passions, and make the work stronger because of their contributions and what they have to offer. Um, and so the, the, the best advice I can give to people who are doing work that is committed to freedom, no matter how you're doing it, is to let go of your ego for long enough to realize that the work will get done, even if you're not always the one doing it. And in fact, you shouldn't always be the one doing it. Yeah. That's good. Really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. I'm like, mm, okay, Brittany is making me speechless again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I, I only tell people things that I know from experience, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I had to learn to let go of my own ego. There are plenty of days when I still have to check my own ego 
to say, hey, this it is you don't need to be out front. This that's not your role here, right? How are mm-hmm. you amplifying others, supporting others, making room for others, passing the mic, and not just being the one on the mic, right? Like there are just yeah. so many ways in which anything that I'm sharing is because I'm I'm in the process of learning it myself. <laughs> That's right. Right. That's right. Well, this was really, really great. Do you have anything else that you want to add that we didn't touch on you feel like is really important? I mean, honestly, just to thank you. I I think that the conversation that you all are leading is so important. And I'm really glad that we have gotten to a space where caring for ourselves, mental health, physical health, disability, that these are things that are being much more widely examined and talked about. But it also means that they have to be spoken about with care and intention and nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that means actually hearing from the folks who live those lives, who live that life every single day. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I just, I, I'm like in deep gratitude um, for you all leading this conversation um, and, and most certainly to be a little part of it. Oh, Brittany. We're in deep gratitude to you yeah. for, for talking to us. That's, yeah. that's very sweet. You're Thank making you. me blush on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I love you too. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank we really, you. really appreciate it. And, yes, thank um, you so much. If people don't already follow you, where can they follow you on the various platforms? I am at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. People always Great. ask me where Miss Pacchetti came from when I was teaching third grade. That's what my students nicknamed me. It's so cute. So it's stuck. <laughs> um, but yeah, Twitter and Instagram is where I spend most of my time. Great. Perfect. And as always, we can be reached at <laughs> ttdontkillme at gmail.com. That's ttdontkillme at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you like this episode, please give us a nice rating. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Stronger